please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences, and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. There's a lot of rock bottoms in my history and they're kind of sad to myself and they're embarrassing in a way that looking back in hindsight, the fact that I would even think of that to do to myself um, is really frustrating and sad knowing that like now that I'm somewhat functioning, you know? Um, So I've had a few rock bottoms. Um, I've had a mental breakdown where I have cried in the shower and collapsed and thought about um, grabbing a kitchen knife and bringing it into the shower and just taking care of my business right then and there. That actually happened once after my son was born, um, which was, uh, you know, it's really difficult to think about now, just knowing what I know now that he's five years older. Um, I've had some times where I have um, just completely shut down from society. So I isolate myself from my friends and family. I didn't get out of bed. I was in a relationship at the time and he was really trying to help me get out and about um, just outside of my house. And I would even just sleep through those types of um, moments as well. Like I would stay in bed. I wouldn't leave. I wouldn't do anything. I didn't talk to anybody. Um, I would do the bare minimum just to like pick up my son, make sure he's taken care of and then go back to bed. Um, and it's it's really sad to look back on now because it's like you, I missed out on a lot there too. So I've had a few rock bottoms in the sense where I didn't think um, I would come back. I, I will say the one saving grace that I did have um, was the fact that a lot of my rock bottoms happened after my son was born. If my son hadn't have been born, I don't know whether or not I would have actually made the action of ending my life. Um, but during that time, it's like I was very seriously thinking about it and even walking through the motions. I didn't actually physically do it because I was like, I cannot leave him here to fend for himself. And I think that it really was my knight in shining armor because it kept me going when I didn't think I could honestly go anymore. Um, most recently, my rock bottom happened a couple of months ago. I mean, like I said, I have a few. Um, and again, this was when I realized how serious my postpartum was and when I finally decided to talk to my doctor about increasing my medication. Um, I was driving down the um, I-25 South and the HOV lane and I just kind of phased out a little bit. You know, you're on autopilot, you're just you know doing what you gotta do to drive. But I had daydreams of me crashing into the side of the wall and just ending my life right then and there in a way that it wasn't necessarily my fault or me taking my own life, but in a way that it would be just done with and, you know, moving on. And when I got into work that morning, I told my boss, who is luckily um, a very big health, mental health advocate, um, what had happened. And I told her, I'm 
going to do a few items here in the office and then I'm going home because I, I cannot be here right now. And she was okay with that. And I was very fortunate in that regard, but that was my most recent rock bottom. And that's when I actually took action to talk to a doctor again and increase my medication. Kelly and I've actually been diagnosed with a few things. Um, I have a tiny bit of OCD. I have a very, very high level of depression and anxiety. Um, my doctor actually joked about it a little bit and they know that I, they can with me, but they were just like, for your age, it's um, tremendous. Um, and I also have um, PTSD. I grew up really conservatively in the sense that I was sheltered. You know, I grew up in Oklahoma um, in a Catholic family. Uh, we didn't really talk about these types of things and you just didn't know about it really because it wasn't an issue or in the news. And quite honestly, um, I thought forever I was just OCD based on like, I am very tidy. I like things a certain way. Um, I have my little rituals for like certain times of the day and I'm thinking, okay, I just, you know, I'm just that type of person, type A OCD. And for the longest time, I thought that that's what it was. Um, a couple of years ago, after I got out of a, a physically abusive relationship, um, about six years ago now, um, I went to a doctor just because I was having a really hard time getting out of bed and just functioning in society. And I told him about what was going on and just my everyday kind of scenario or my thought process. And they're like, you're not OCD. Like you, like they said, yes, there's a little bit there, but you actually have an extremely high level of depression and anxiety. The fact that you're functioning the way you are even surprised them um, because they like they don't know, at least at the time, the doctor mentioned that they don't have anybody in their practice that is at, a, you know, about at the time, you know, like 25, 26 that had that kind of anxiety or depression that they had treated before. So it was a surprise to them and a surprise to me because I had no idea. Um, but it made a lot of sense when I finally found out about it. But I was just like, I... I've never been medicated before. I have no idea what to expect. I, you know, you have all these stigmas and they told me to go to therapy and I'm like, I don't need a therapist. I'm not crazy. And they said, you don't have to have something wrong with you to talk to a therapist. Um, sometimes it's just good to talk. And I'm like, all right, I'll approach it from that perspective. Like, I'll just see what I can do. And my whole perspective on just mental health in general transformed in those years uh, to where I do like talking about it and being open about it, even in my professional life, because it's a little taboo in my professional world. But at the same time, if you aren't that transparent and talking about it, then you're just perpetuating that tabooness of, oh, that you can't talk about that. And I'm like, it impacts your everyday life. Like you should be able to talk about it. So um, yeah, my perspective just did a complete 180 in the, in the course of the diagnosis process. My doctor and I had a pretty good relationship. She was a younger professional doctor, and I am a very dry, sarcastic person who would, you know, love to watch like The Office or Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like it's um, sometimes not super great jokes are funny to me, I guess, because of that sarcasm. So she knew that, but, um, cause my chiropractor even jokes that like, I have the back of an 80 year old woman because my back is horrible. Um, but she 
did it in a way that she knows that like I like to use humor in ways to cope with um, serious issues. And she knew that just based on my history with her. And she just kind of went into, I don't like jokingly is a little of a stronger word that I would like to, that I would like to use, but it's the easiest to kind of portray what that looks like. But she used humor in a way to lessen the impact of the news to me, knowing that it was a very big, um, you know, eye-opening news to myself. I got lucky, um, honestly, somebody who was willing to experiment with medication with me. I had to go through three different medications. Um, I didn't want to be heavily medicated, even though they recommended a very high dosage. I wasn't willing to do that. I didn't want to rely on that. So she was really open to saying, okay, if you do this, you have to do therapy. Like you don't have a choice if we go this route. Um, so she was willing to negotiate, but still put her foot down to try to create a plan that would help me become more functional and everyday life, um, which has helped a lot because there are days to this day that are really tough. Um, I currently have postpartum depression as well. I have a um, 13 month old girl and a five and a half year old boy. And I didn't know that I had postpartum in my first um, uh, post-birth experience. I just thought it was me just, you know, kind of being a new mom and being a single mom just out of an abusive relationship. I just kind of thought that's what it was. And then as postpartum depression became a lot more out there in the world um, and actually talking to my doctor after my second born, she's like, yes, you do have postpartum. Like you need to address that as well and adjust your medication for that time being as well. And that's something that we're currently doing because even though she's 13 months old, I'm still very much in it. And um, I found out that apparently postpartum can last upwards of two to two and a half years after baby's born. Um, which I did not know, um, and I'm living that right now, so it's a, a real thing. So unfortunately, I'm not in therapy because I had changed insurance providers, and I was unable to keep my therapist, and I tried online therapy sessions, and they were working for a little bit, like the new online ones, um, I know there's a couple of ones. This one is, I can't remember the name of it to save my life, but I know like Michael Phelps has been in a commercial for him. Um, but I couldn't afford it to be completely honest. I just, I couldn't afford $400 a month just to talk to somebody. Like it was helpful and I do see the value, but when it comes down to pennies, like I just couldn't stretch it. So I am not in therapy anymore and that I have seen the impact of that. Um, when, when wanting to talk to my doctor about increasing medication, it was really just grappling with my ego and realizing I can't do this alone anymore with what I have. I've had three different doctors in the course of my um, four-year span in Denver, just mostly because of uh, insurance changes. It's interesting enough because all three doctors and my therapist have been pushing me to um, have a higher um, dosage of my medication for the longest time. And, um, it was really coming to terms with that. I do need that extra help. I can't be egotistical anymore thinking that I can do this. Like I'm, I'm failing at this right now. 
So I messaged my doctor. Luckily, I'm on a um, plant where I can do it remotely instead of having to go in because they're just a pain in the keister to get into. Um, but I was able to message them and let them know what's going on and just saying, like, I am not in a good place anymore. I cannot function. Um, it's been recommended that I up my dosage, basically doubling my dosage, um, and that it's in my record multiple times. And he had access to that and he agreed. I did the assessments as they always do um, to just track the progress. And he ag agreed to do that dosage increase and decided to say, okay, we'll check in in so many months and see how that's working for you. Um, so the, the conversation was easy in the sense that it was just, I think the, the record spoke for itself and the doctor was like, okay, if she's willing to do it, then I'm fine with doing it as well. So it wasn't a hard conversation to have, but the hardest thing was, coming to terms with my own ego and saying, I do need the help. I, I can't manage this anymore on my own, given the little help that I have. And I just need more of that help. So I was in a relationship with an individual and my scenario, I I mean, this is kind of me shooting myself in my own foot in terms of like belittling the experience a little bit. And I just do that because I know how serious these things can get. Um, I was in a, a mentally, physically and emotional abusive relationship for about a year. Um, I The person did try to kill me a couple of times while I was pregnant. But at the same time, my parents saw the signs of like when I came into um some family functions with bruises or wearing long sleeves. My mother, apparently, I didn't know this, but my mother said that she had had training around um, abusive relationships because apparently her mother, my grandmother, had been in physically abusive relationships before. And so she actually has gone through like that before and knows the signs and also received special training outside of just her own livelihood, you know, like her own life experience because of her involvement in nonprofits. And she's like, I see what's going on. I, I know what's happening. And it took about two interventions with my mom and my dad. It was by the third intervention and the um, third time that a big physical altercation occurred why I was six months, or not six months, excuse me, six weeks pregnant, um, that I finally got a wake up call where I was like, I, I can't do this if I'm pregnant. Like I gotta get out of this. Um, so third time's a charm luckily. Um, but I say that my scenario was different in the sense that my parents were able to financially support me getting a lawyer, getting a protective order, um, making sure that I'm separated from that individual, um, also making sure that we kept all documentation with the child um, off the record with his name no longer involved. Uh, so that way I could have a separation. Um, I had a lawyer who was very good at making sure to lay the foundation of doubt of whether or not the child was his um, because he was a very manipulative person and just always accused you of doing something wrong. So it was pretty easy to convince him doubt wise. Like if he wanted to pursue parenting rights, he would have to go through that process instead of just saying like, yes, you're the parent. So I was very fortunate in having support to get out of there. And, and if I wouldn't have had that, I don't think I would have seen what I saw. Um, I, I, uh, so he, like the, the big altercation that happened, I, I remember it like 
like a slow motion movie picture, honestly. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It was March 3rd. Um, it was after a outing for a restaurant opening. And when we got back to our apartment, um, I walk in the door and there's like a kitchen island and I turn around and I don't really know why, but I get pushed to the ground um, pretty hardcore where like I'm getting pushed into the side of the granite countertop on the island and pushed to the ground. And he leans over me and lights a cigarette and starts to like blow smoke into my face. And um, he didn't actually put the cigarette out on me, but he had it hovering to where like the ashes fell. And I don't, I mean, I remember him yelling at me and I remember, I clearly remember calling for help and none ever came. And I lived in an apartment and to this day, I just wonder why didn't anyone say anything um but because the cops could have been there easily um but i then he went outside with his dog he had a, a pit bull i remember um and i ended up going into the bathroom and he came back into the bathroom and pulled me off uh, i was sitting on the toilet crying and he pulled me off the toilet and i was holding on to the towel rack not wanting to be like taken and I, we ended up pulling the towel rack off of the wall um, when he did that and there was a knife in his like pocket and he took it out and like threatened me with it and then, um, shoved me across the bed where I fell on the other side of the bed and started choking me to the point where I passed out. And, um, I woke up the next morning with a couple of bruises on my back and, um, my legs. Um, and I don't really have, much clarity of what happened like the conversations or the yelling like I just remember those like high points of the back and forth um but it was not a not a fun experience but it was um the next day that I realized if I'm gonna have this baby I, I can't do that to them or myself and that's when I made the call to my parents and said I I need your help to to get out of this. And I think they were more relieved than anything else to um, finally hear that I was accepting my situation and um, wanting to have help to get out. But that is where it comes from. Um, I didn't talk to anybody for a year after that. I didn't, I couldn't make eye contact with anybody of the opposite sex. I still have issues to this day of making contact um, or eye contact with members of the opposite sex. Um, it's, I've come a long way from, from that aspect of it, but I, um, I didn't want to be near anybody for a very long time. And luckily in that time, I, I learned a lot about myself by being isolated. I realized how codependent I was. I realized how that codependency led me to date the type of people that I date that were very manipulative and very emotionally abusive, but never physically so until recently, you know, and um, I ended up getting my protective order for five years. My five years are up um, as of this last January of 2019, and I had a little bit of a panic attack when that happened. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? My partner assured me, he was like, it's been five years. You're not even on his radar. Don't even worry. Um, but I just, I moved states since then, you know, so I'm in Denver now. Um, 
but it's something that really bothers me to this day. If I see a white Chevy Avalanche truck, I get a little mini panic attack. Um, and it was so bad in Oklahoma that that not only was moving part of just my career opportunity, but it was a big underlying reason to move out of Oklahoma because I couldn't even drive down the road without having a panic attack by seeing a singular truck. Um, so that's kind of where that PTSD comes from. You're like a horse running a race with your blinders on. You don't realize what's going on because of the world they build around you. I had no idea how isolated he made me or how I was being controlled. If you have somebody who has that kind of experience, all you can do is just be there for them at the drop of a dime. If anything happens, whether it's a place to stay or, you know, like you need to come over there with a gun or whatever that might look like. But um, it's one of those things where they're never going to find out unless they find out for themselves because you can do everything right and they'll never believe you. And that's who I was. And it, it took that extreme of a scenario and being pregnant to make me realize that. And I don't think if I wasn't pregnant, I would have really seen that. I would have just, you know, I don't know if I would have kept going or not. Um, I would like to think that I wouldn't, but at the same time, knowing who I was then, I don't know. I know the pregnancy played a big role in me deciding to, you know, frankly, grow up. And you just kind of had to when you're going to be a parent. never knew or encountered any type of scenario of anyone getting help. And so when the conversation came up for me to get medication, you think of that stereotype of like somebody's crazy, they need help medication wise, and they have to talk to a professional and go to a crazy house. That is the most opposite image that I hope anyone will ever think of in the future when it comes to mental health. It is so different than that. And growing up with that image, you're like, oh, now I'm that person. But when you go through it, you're just amazed about how regular it is and how human it makes you. And that like you do have to have help because it's not just your thought. It is truly a chemical imbalance that is incurring that you're incurring in your like your chemistry and your makeup and it's like that chemical imbalance plays a bigger part in your whole livelihood than you ever thought and what that medication does is help the chemical balance balance back out so it's not you trying to not be crazy it's literally a scientific balancing of your body <laughs> um but yeah that's really how it came to be where grappling with the ego thing. Like when I first found out that I had to take medication, I wasn't willing to do that. And I, but my doctor really pushed it and I started to get more open to the idea. The more we talked about it um, and just saying, okay, well, let's try some things at the lowest dosage and see what we can find out. And then when we found one that worked for me, um, she was like, okay, now that you're okay on this, you know, I want to either up this to where you need it to be or, you talk to a therapist. Um, that's what we ended up agreeing on is keeping it low and talking to a therapist. But um, when I had to think about upping it, it came down to very similar to how my son kept me going in my first postpartum um, phase. My, my kids and my family keep me going now. was unemployed at the time. I got laid off from a contract. I didn't have really anything else going on. I was feeling 
my like, not initially a midlife crisis. I think they call it what that quarter life crisis scenario. I wasn't, you know, I was a few years older than that, but at the same time, like I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was like, all right, you know, if anything, hopefully I can get to the root cause or just kind of work this out. Cause I don't like the way I'm feeling now and I have the time to invest into it. Um, so my, honestly, like the, I think the biggest thing that people really underestimate is the relationship you have with your doctor. And if you are very open and honest with them and are not afraid to tell them the truth of what's going on, you, if you're lucky enough to have somebody who cares and most doctors do, they will work with you to find something that's comfortable for you. And I was lucky enough to have one of those doctors because I wouldn't have ever pursued a therapist or, you know, really doing medication without her kind of pushing it in a way, because I just would have never made the conclusion that that's the, the, the help that was needed. And it, she was absolutely right at the time. Like it is the help that was needed. I noticed where a lot of the depression and anxiety stemmed from. I noticed a tremendous difference in my overall, um, just willingness to get out of bed and kind of interact with life or saying, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to make it through this. Like, I just, I didn't want to say I just all of a sudden got optimistic because that's not the truth. Like it, it is a trug through the forest and you are, you know, trying, I mean, you're, Oh goodness. I don't remember the name of the character. Harrison Floyd played him. What was that character's name? Um, Indiana Jones. My God. You, that's like a knock against me there. Um, so there goes my credibility, right? Um, so in you're like Indiana Jones going through the jungle and you have to create your own path and it is not an easy path and it's going to take a lot of work and uphill battle. And um, luckily that was something my therapist laid out in front of me right away. She was like, this is going to be a hard situation. Like this is not easy. You are trying to change chemical links in your brain and behavior and that's going to be an un, like a hard thing to do so although I was you know feeling more enthusiast enthusiasm for the day or you know enthusiastic about the day um it wasn't just like I over all of a sudden came optimistic it was very much that trug through the jungle and realizing why I feel the way that I do and coming to terms with that and you know, working through different types of experimentation on some techniques of how to cope with certain situations or how to deal with the root causes of why I feel the way that I do to try and come uh, over that. And for a little while I did, I've noticed by not being in therapy, um, a lot of that has come back and you try to keep going. Um, but at the same time, again, it's like you, if you don't keep riding the bike through that path every day, then like the snow will cover back up and then you have to start from scratch. Um, and that's how she described it to me. I just remember it that way. But um, if you don't keep practicing, you forget it. And that's what happened by not going to therapy continuously. partner and I, we've been together for going on, like just in friends, as friends, we've been, we've known each other going on five and a half years. 
he wants to be helpful. He, you know, always is trying to know what he can do to keep me going. But he has made it very clear that he doesn't know how to help. He doesn't know what to do because he doesn't know what it really is to to deal with this. Um, so there are times of frustration on my end because I just feel like there's a little lack of empathy, but I also understand that it's hard to have empathy if you just don't know what it is that this person's feeling or encountering, as well as he's just so logical that sometimes, and he's so analytical that sometimes when you're trying to approach something from an emotional standpoint, it is harder to, you know, state, I think, or grapple with mentally because it's not as logical as maybe this, you know, he would like. So it is a sense of frustration in some ways. Um, but at the same time, I do think he's trying to be as understanding as he can be, but I don't think he truly under understands what it means to deal with a mental illness or like a diagnosis. A lot of people who work with me would never know that I encounter it or that, you know, they would say like, oh, she's got her, you know, her stuff together. Like, you know what she's doing. And it's because I have to in my job. Um, and so I think a lot of people who deal with mental illnesses are similar to where a lot of people don't realize that they're even grappling with something like that. So I feel like there's a couple of ways you could describe it. One way is like, you know, you're, you're, you're in a rock and a hard place, right? Um, and you're essentially getting a pressure pushed down upon you, constantly squeezing you and just exerting you of all of your energy and effort because you're trying to hold that rock up to keep it from crushing you completely. And so you're so exhausted emotionally, physically, mentally to the point where you cannot physically function in any type of situation, but it's still pressing on you and you're fighting back constantly to keep that hovering to where you can, you know, still operate as a human being. So that's one way that I would describe it. Another way that's a little bit more humorous, um, maybe for those who have kids, uh, it's like trying to go to the bathroom just to be on your phone and be alone. And constantly you have somebody pestering you, trying to open the door, unlock it. Mom, 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 are you there? What are you doing? I have a question. Can I ask you two questions? Um, why is the door locked? Can I come in? And then sometimes the door isn't locked. They're like, oh, mom, are you here? Let's talk about this. I have a question for you. Can I ask you two questions? I want to tell you that I love you. Did you know that I have a ninja friend named Fred and that all of my friends on my planet from Ninja Planet blew up. I think the rock scenario of where it's just constantly pushing you down, trying to crush you, and you really are having to fight for your life by holding that up. And you do that in a way where you're you're going to work. You're showing up for a meeting for school with your children, or you're going out on a date with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or your wife. Like you are showing up to the day is a battle in itself. And the fact that you get out of bed and even just brush your hair sometimes is a huge win. And they don't see those things. They don't realize that that is a huge win for you because you have that rock crushing down on you and getting out of bed helps you lift that rock a little higher. Um, but they don't see that rock slowly trying to push you down throughout the day. So I feel like that analogy is a really 
easy one to hopefully paint a picture enough to where somebody who doesn't encounter mental illness can understand that like it is a constant struggle and it is exhausting on all levels just to show up for the day and just the smallest thing even when you are a functioning person with depression and anxiety sometimes for me just brushing my hair having it down is a win Just because you're an individual struggling with a mental illness, that does not define you or make you who you are. And I don't think it defines me. It is definitely a part of me and something I tackle with every day. But like, I am a better person because of it. I am more aware and self-aware because I have to actively be self-aware to get through the day. Um, and so, and I think it makes me focus on the things that are worth living for when you do have those downfalls. Um, so I would like to add, honestly, that it just because somebody may be having this or somebody you know has it or they go to therapy or they take medication or whatever that might look like, it does not make them or define them. It is a part of them, but that is not what you should ever focus on. It only makes them a better person. The fact that they are aware of it and they're, they're managing it or trying to make it better, that just makes them 10 times better as a person than it does by defining them just a, based on something that is, you know, a title like mental illness. For more information and to donate, please visit youdon'tfightalone.org. You Don't Fight Alone is sponsored in part by Mentally Chill, an improv team talking about mental illness and how it's so hard but no one likes to bother anyone about it. Be prepared to be bothered. Find them on facebook.com slash mentallychillimprov, Instagram at mentallychillimprov, and at Voodoo Comedy beginning this September. The You Don't Fight Alone podcast is a production of You Don't Fight Alone Incorporated, produced and engineered by James Fisher and Keaton Lycom. The information presented by You Don't Fight Alone is not intended as medical advice. If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.